0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today, Elise is sitting down with Jessica Helm. Jessica is a postdoctoral fellow at Silent Spring Institute. Her research, which is fascinating, focuses on how endocrine-disrupting chemicals affect our health some of her most important research has examined ethnic disparities in chemical exposure and hormone-related health conditions. Elise met Jessica in Boston to talk about what she's discovered. And then to make us all feel better, they talked us through some simple ways that we can reduce our exposure to endocrine disruptors and other chemicals of concern.
1: All this can get pretty overwhelming. as you You called it the rabbit hole. It can get pretty overwhelming. I think one thing to realize is that a single step and another single step adds up eventually to a journey.
0: We'll get to their ideas in a minute.
2: One of my favorite weekends is coming up. On Saturday, March 9th, we'll be back in New York City for our next InGoop Health, which is our big wellness summit. We started InGoop Health to answer this question, can you change your life in a day? On one level, we all know the answer. Because if you've fallen in love, fallen out with a friend, had a child, started a new job, you know that change happens in an instant. But what about the smaller, imperceptible paradigm shifts that give you an entirely different vantage point? What about that nugget of information that is so deeply resonant that takes hold in your soul until you're forced to look at what it might mean to you? Sometimes those little things prove to be the most profound. That's what an InGoop Health Day is all about. There are talks and panels where some of the brightest thought leaders share new information, insights, and perspective. There are wellness experiences and adventures for almost every comfort level. So you can dip your toe in with a workshop on intuition and creativity, maybe get a vitamin B12 shot, or just head straight to the other side with a medium reading. And of course, there's a lot of good food, drinks, and a pretty great community. We'd love to see you in New York on March 9th. To get a ticket, check out goop.com slash health.
0: Okay, let's get to Elise and Jessica.
2: So thanks so much for being here, Jessica. Can you sort of give us an overview of Silent Springs, the mission, why it was created, how you found yourself there? Yeah, I'd love to. So, oh, and thanks for having me also. Um, so I was a
1: PhD student in neuroscience. Um, And I was starting to get involved in environmental activism as a volunteer with the Sierra Club. And this is in New York State at a time when fracking, uh, hydraulic fracturing was really kind of rising to public consciousness and it was becoming a really big deal in Pennsylvania and it might be coming to New York State. And I just started hearing all these stories about people who's, you've probably seen some videos once upon a time, people whose taps, you could light them on fire and they were getting nosebleeds and headaches and respiratory problems and... All these things from the activity, from the fracking activity in their area. And that was sort of my first light bulb moment when I realized that pollution wasn't just about smokestack emissions and water pollution from factories and and exhaust pipes from cars, that it was something that actually was very personal to people in their homes Mm. um, and that affected people in their bodies and in their homes. And uh, that really inspired me to apply to Sound Spring Institute to do research in environmental health. And environmental health being sort of the study of how the environment affects our health, and Sal Spring Institute is a pretty unique place. It was founded by breast cancer activists who wanted to do research to understand the causes of breast cancer and how breast cancer could actually be prevented. so we kind of look at things from a from a different angle, and um it's a pretty special place for that reason
2: and tell me if I'm wrong, but from what I read, it sounds like it was. There was a really high incidence of breast cancer within Cape Cod. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like more than coincidence.
1: Right. And the, the activists felt like there was a lot of attention to breast cancer detection and to treatment, but that there really wasn't a lot of effort going into understanding what was causing these things and what might be preventable. And so they really wanted to look at things like, you know, is it the pesticide spraying on the island, is it the fact that that um, Cape Cod or the, on the this the spit of land? Is it the fact that Cape Cod is sitting on an aquifer that's fed by water that's you know coming through the soil and whatever goes on the soil ends up in the drinking water? You know, there's all these factors that they wanted to consider, and so they decided to create an organization and hire some scientists and have them start looking at this. And this really just rapidly grew into a larger effort to understand all of the. Um different factors that can be contributing to breast cancer because it turns out that what- you know what's true for Cape Cod isn't just
2: true for cape cod it's it's true for all of us and what did what have they sort of i know you guys have done and are continuing to do a huge amount of studies which are probably unique or similar to studies that are done maybe done in a more academic way and that they're not funded by pharma or anyone who has a vested interest like what have you what have you guys started to see? Right. So
1: you have a really interesting point that that you you made in there, which is that our funding is um, twofold from uh, grants from federal and state agencies and from private donors that actually want to support our mission and our work. And that gives us the freedom to ask some questions that people who are funded either through private research, the research arm of corporations or in academia where they're only funded by grants that they don't have the freedom to do. So we've been able to ask some sort of different questions that sort of lead the field um, into new areas.
2: So back to your original question, I think was what what is some of the research that we were doing? Sorry, I forgot your question. Yeah, exactly. Like, what have you, did you figure, did you solve the, have you solved the puzzle of why these women in Cape Cod were seeing higher incidences of breast cancer? Like, what has emerged or starting to emerge?
1: Right. So breast cancer is actually really interesting. I've learned a lot since I joined it, coming over from neuroscience. And one of the things that I learned is that the breast is a fascinating organ. So just a quick biology sketch on how this works, is that if you imagine the breast as a tree, or at least the, stru- the structure in the breast that is most frequently implicated in breast cancer, and that functions as the most important thing, which is to produce milk, in early development, like in the fetal stage, you get sort of the trunk of the tree. And I'm drawing with my hands here. You can't, can't see it. <laughs> in the fetal stage, you get the trunk of the tree. And then things are pretty quiet up until puberty. And all of a sudden, when we hit puberty, it sort of starts to grow all the way out, the branches all the way out to as far, farthest reach of the tree as it's going to get. And then every month throughout adulthood, once we've reached puberty, every month our menstrual cycles, during this process of the menstrual cycle, the trees, the branches sort of get denser and denser. So they elaborate and get get thicker and they grow more like little branchlets. And it's not actually until pregnancy that we grow what, you might, you might think of these leaves, like the active portion that makes the milk, these little circles at the end of it. So what that means is that the breast is actually an immature organ for most of our lives. And actually, after pregnancy, it goes on to regress and goes back through these proliferative cycles again. Proliferative meaning the cells are dividing and growing. So that means it's, it's immature and it's very vulnerable to environmental insults throughout our lives, which is just fascinating. One of the implications of that is that we know in terms of the the risk factors for breast cancer, like the really well-understood risk factors include these hormone-related factors. So the earlier you go through puberty as a woman, the higher your risk of breast cancer. The later your onset of menopause, the higher your risk. So basically, the longer in your life that you're exposed to these reproductive hormones, in particular estrogen and progesterone, the more you're exposed to these, the higher your risk of breast cancer. And we see that with hormone replacement therapy. There was a really large-scale study done of breast cancer risk in women who went through hormone replacement therapy and found that that actually elevated the risk. So other examples of that are there. women were treated, pregnant women were treated with this chemical called DES. And it turned out that there were a lot of negative effects. Actually, this is a, a hormone that mimics the effect of estrogen. And it was given to women when they're, when they're pregnant. And many years later, it was found that the children actually had an increased risk of breast cancer. Mm. And what one of the reasons that that was happening is that actually altered the development of the breast itself in a way that makes it more susceptible. And we've seen that since that time with other chemicals as well, including DDT and a perfluorinated chemical. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is sort of identify the ways in which the breast is susceptible. So I just mentioned the, the disruption of development being one way that makes the breast susceptible to breast cancer. Another way is, and I mentioned this breast goes through these sort of periods every time we go, go through a menstrual cycle, how it kind of proliferates and elaborates. how it, That also happens in pregnancy. It goes through this big proliferative phase. So that's all in response to estrogen. And so chemicals that act like estrogen, that's one type of hormone disruptor, or we call them endocrine disrupting chemicals. Hormones that act like estrogen can often have proliferative effect on the breast and in turn be a risk factor for breast cancer. So we sort of look at the at what the what affects the breast in terms of the mechanisms of you know what increases risk. And then we look at all the chemicals that are out there, try to figure out first of all what they are. So that's a big part of what we've done is just to look in our environment and try to measure what chemicals are there. We'll look at the dust and we'll look at the air And we'll take samples from homes and actually measure them and look at what chemicals are in them so we can even figure out what's around us. And uh, we'll look at media. Like, for example, I published a study this past year that was testing hair products for the presence of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, so understanding what's in the products that we use. And then separately, we look at what are the health effects of these chemicals. And we know that many of the chemicals that are in our homes and in the products that we use are able to mimic or disrupt the activity of hormones in our bodies. And that has implications for breast cancer, but also has implications for other diseases as well. For fetal growth, we've, we see some effects on like low birth weight or disruption of the development of the reproductive system, actual physical alterations, as well as like later effects on intelligence, on metabolism and immune system. There's a really such a wide range of organs and systems in the bodies that are affected by chemicals you know, the environment that we interact with really has a a wide repertoire of effects that it can have.
2: Yeah. And I know that there's legislation that is currently being worked on that is relatively hopeful, but there really is no, there's very little chemical legislation in this country, which I think people don't realize. They assume that because drugs are FDA approved, that there is some sort of governing agency that's looking at face cream and looking at cleaning products and the reality is that there are only eleven banned for personal care, eleven banned chemicals in the United States. There are more than a thousand in the EU, but no one's regulating this. Why do you think that that is? Do you think it's just inherently sort of part of the patriarchy?
1: I think that's a really big question.
2: <laughs> we well, have all day. We do. <laughs>
1: um, why is it? Well, I think partly it's historical, and partly it's a matter of. We have a very strong anti-regulatory sort of influence and, and vein in our country. We're very resistant to, to, to regulation in general in many areas. And I think this is a way that companies who who feel that they're best able to evaluate for themselves what they're able to do say, hey, let us regulate ourselves. And to a large extent, that's that's been what's happened. It's been up to the companies to determine the safety of the individual ingredients and the safety of the products themselves. And... There have been suggestions and legislation that's been proposed to change that and has, has yet to happen. There are other areas of the government that at least – or other areas of regulation that at least have mechanisms in place that, that should be able to address that. For example, it, drugs and uh, chemicals that are used in, in products – are you're supposed to at this point now make a determination of safety and tell the EPA whether or not a chemical is safe before you start using it. But that research is still being done in large part by the companies and they're still, you know, Mm -hmm. making that report to the EPA. And then the EPA says, okay, we agree. But you know, the EPA and nonprofit groups like us we're we're very very small in terms of resources compared to all the resources that are going into developing thousands of chemicals every year, and so it's a little bit lopsided in terms of our ability to keep up the process of identifying these and identifying all these health effects. So yeah, I think it's a, a many factored problem, but part of it's certainly a lack of will and parts a lack of resources.
2: Yeah, and then it's it's interesting that the onus seems to be on us as citizens and, and scientists who are concerned to prove that these things are deleterious to our health rather than the opposite of proving without a shadow of a doubt that they're not. And and we often find ourselves in this debate at Goop, and obviously we care very deeply about clean beauty and not having toxic chemicals in the home and, do, and eating organically whenever possible and just sort of trying to minimize our toxic load because there is so much and it's all around us and it's in the air we breathe and And as women, we use so many products and our children use so many products. So it seems sort of also like a very difficult ball to unravel. And we all have our own individual chemistry, right? And our own potential, you know, genetic risk factors, whether they're expressed by the environment or not. So those debates too, I find exceptionally frustrating. I I don't know if you remember the debate between Slate and the New York Times about phthalates, And their presence in Kraft macaroni and cheese, for example. And it was this in the weeds debate where essentially they were saying this dose is not problematic and this is ridiculous. I can't remember who at this point. I think the slate was criticizing the New York Times for criticizing phthalates' presence in macaroni and cheese. And it was like, why are we wasting our breath? Like, take the fucking phthalates out of the macaroni and cheese. Like, no one should be eating plasticizer. Can't we all agree on that? And then you think about your child who has a rapidly developing hormonal system, and like, what else are they eating and what else are they exposed to? And like, these seem like I'm sure you probably feel this frustration more acutely than I do, but like, why are we even having these debates and trying to determine what is an appropriate dose when we could just force people to create products without? Yeah. I don't know what the question is well, in there. Well,
1: no, I mean, it, you bring up another challenge. I mean, it's it's this dose question is a real challenge for a couple of reasons. If you have a sensitive enough test, you can find traces, contaminant traces of chemicals in so many products because they're an integral part of our production system. So to a certain extent, it's it's not just getting it out of one product. It's just getting it out of our, our chemical production system and commerce. It's their use in our environment. I mean, if they're not even in the production, a lot of times they show up in our food just because, you know, they're in the air and the water and they mm-hmm. end up in in the actual, the grains and the, the milk and whatever else. So it's even a bigger challenge than figuring out the right dose for any one food product. It's it's really about addressing entire chemicals. And it, the other problem we run into is that we'll target one chemical, like, okay, take BPA, a chemical that's in plastics. And we might've heard about it because it was in our some water bottles and in baby food bottles and in food cans. The trouble is you target one chemical and then Companies start to look for alternatives, which they need to do because these things serve a function in these plastics that they're looking they're looking for. They end up coming up with chemicals that are really similar to the one that we've just removed from baby bottles, let's say, like BPA, BPS, BPF. Basically they're they're changing a few, a few atoms and they end up with the same basic structure. And a lot of them have the same function in terms of having estrogenitive extrogenic effects. So that problem of substitution is a really big problem too. And one of the one of the things that we we try to do is to think about things as a class, a class of chemicals. We can't mm-hmm. just target the one. We have to look at what makes us similar to other chemicals and how can we get rid of the whole bunch of them at once. You see this with perfluorinated chemicals too, which have really been starting to rise to the public consciousness because of a lot of water contamination issues that we have all around the country. And perfluorinated chemicals, there are there are thousands of them, and there there are so many scientists don't even know what many of these are. We know the best studied ones, but there are so many out there, and many of them do have have health concerns. And so it's really like a matter of identifying what is it that makes a perfluorinated chemical toxic, and how do we get rid of the class mm-hmm. rather than you know shooting one down and finding out that we have which we've gone through. We've already gone through multiple cycles of substitutions with many of these chemicals.
2: Yeah. Thinking, too, of like one clear example of why dose and exposure, like a clear example is you've done a lot of work looking at African-American women who are typically exposed to, are using more products and are using products that are inherently more toxic, where there are no sort of clean alternatives like hair straighteners and whatnot. And there are real repercussions right?
1: Well, we know that Black women suffer disproportionately from hormone-related health problems, reproductive health problems. They suffer from higher rates of infertility, from earlier onset of puberty, and higher rates of fibroids. And all of these are hormone-related disorders. Mm -hmm. We also know that Black women have higher levels of certain chemicals in their bodies that we, that are in consumer products and in personal care products in particular. So that's why we wanted to test the these hair products that we that we were testing. We wanted to know, okay, are these chemicals even in these hair products? And the answer was very much yes. They were consistently in these hair products and it consistent with or slightly higher levels than we saw in other products. So if you combine the fact that these chemicals are in you know multiple products that women are using every day, they're using a whole range of products and they add up. Even if the dose in one is not very high, you're using multiple products that have the same chemical. And then on top of that, product isn't just made of one chemical. There's, there's hundreds, potentially, of chemicals in each product. And you get into the effect of the mixtures of those, those different chemicals together in the body, and you get the potential for some, some real health impacts. So that's why we're really concerned to see that the hair products that, that women were, these black women were using had endocrine-disrupting properties. And combining that with the fact that we know that women are using a lot of these products suggests to us that there's an opportunity for potentially preventing some diseases mm-hmm. by eliminating some of these chemicals and products.
0: We'll get right back to Elise and Jessica.
2: I always felt like guys' razors were designed a little bit better, and I've been known to go for my husband's razor in the past. But I'm pretty beholden to my own now. It's made by a brand called Flamingo. If you know Harry's, the men's grooming brand, Flamingo uses the same German engineer technology as Harry's to create super high-quality, five-blade cartridges. Only the Flamingo version is designed for women, so it glides across all the right places. Legs, ankles, knees, armpits, bikini line, etc. The razor has a grippy handle, which comes in three colors, and it has little rose gold details. There's also an adaptable hinge. So the razor looks pretty in the shower caddy, but you'll keep it around because it makes for a precise clean shave. And that feeling of getting into bed and slipping under the covers is somehow just better. If you test drive Flamingo yourself, I think you'll agree that it's up to par with the best men's blade standards at Harry's. And the same $9 price may be even a little better. You can pick up a flamingo razor and blade refill pack at shopflamingo.com backslash goop. And for goop listeners, it's free shipping. That's shopflamingo.com backslash goop. I'm big on shortcuts in the kitchen. Some of my favorite goop recipes of all time are the sheet pan dinners, which basically involves rounding up a bunch of ingredients and tossing them all together on the same pan to roast in the oven. If you're looking for somewhere to start, try the salmon with bok choy and asparagus. A lot of nights we don't even have the energy for a sheet pan dinner though, or at least not the ingredients we need to pull it together. This is when it's really nice having another shortcut. I like leaning on Gobble. It's a meal kit delivery service that gives you everything you need to get dinner on the table in just 15 minutes, so there's no planning, no grocery shopping, and no prep work involved. Everything shows up at your doorstep, ready to be cooked. There are always healthy options to choose from, and lots of plant-based meals like quinoa vegetable chili. If you're a pescatarian, Gobble's got you covered, too. Some of their recent kits included pan-seared scallops with curried cauliflower couscous and a souvlaki marinated salmon with orzo salad. There's also plenty for carnivores, too, like chicken piccata and even filet mignon. To try out Gobble yourself, head to gobble.com goop and take $50 off your first box of meals. That's gobble.com goop.
0: Okay. Let's get to the rest of today's chat. We talk
2: a lot about sort of label literacy at Goop and understanding how to determine what's a, you know, what's a phthalate, what's a paraben, you know, what is endocrine disrupting, what is carcinogenic, essentially. So, mm-hmm. how much did you find? Because. In our experience and our understanding too, things like synthetic fragrance, for example, tend to be Trojan horses. They're, they're intellectual property, so they're protected and no one's disclosing. Companies are not required to disclose what's in their fragrance mm-hmm. on the label, so they can sort of put whatever they want in it. And typically to make a fragrance adhere, you it has some sort of plasticizing agent. How closely, I don't know if this was part of your study, but when you were assessing like sort of chemically what was in the formulas. How closely did it match with what was advertised on the label?
1: Great question. Not very well is the answer, which is unfortunate because obviously that interferes with our ability to avoid some of these things. Fragrances, as you said, are not well labeled. Mm -hmm. Um, The good news is, is that they do have to at least say fragrance or parfum on the label when they have these fragrances. So one of the things that we say in general is just to try to find products without fragrance. Now, I know, you know, that's challenging. And so part of that is asking companies to make products with fewer fragrances. And that's also a cultural thing. Like we we like fragrances as a culture. And so some of that's just like looking at our own desires and maybe seeing if we're willing to go without mm-hmm. in some of the products that we use frequently, for example. So yeah, we did find that parabens also tended that's the other good news. Parabens tended to be better labeled by no means all the time, but they tended to be better labeled than some of the other Chemicals. So there's two things that we can do. We can you know look for avoiding parabens and look for avoiding fragrances on the label, um, and then reduce some of our exposures that way. But yeah, the the bad news is that many of the other chemicals weren't very well labeled at all.
2: Yeah, when I went through this own process for myself because I wasn't aware, and then it happened for me after I had my first child. And then you're like, I think I'm very. That's a common story that I hear. It's like you turn that bottle around and you're like, what's in this, and then down the rabbit hole we go, right? But it's interesting because I've stripped all synthetic fragrance out of our life, essentially, out of our detergents and our cleaning products. And we make a natural fragrance at Goop. But once you take them out, it's even just being in a hotel room last night, I was like, oh my God, like the fragrance of this detergent is overwhelming. Like I do think you can sort of reprogram your mind to not, Crave or want like the scent of air freshener. It starts to become you. Uh, the more you separate it from it, I feel like you be- you begin to understand how cloying and chemical it is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. that was a random aside. No, but-
1: I would say I I do want to say it's not necessarily just synthetic fragrances. I mean, basically, fragrances in general are not super well studied in terms of their long term health effects. So. For us, it's more a matter of just trying to decrease the overall amount that we're mm-hmm. exposed to. And as you say, some once you start paying attention to it, you go into spaces and you kind of get bowled over once you realize how much is there all the time. So I think there's definitely really simple opportunities to just cut down more broadly.
2: What are the other places that you... Um, for people who are, let's say, more beginner, I think we've kind of covered some of that ground. And then for people who are more advanced, like where are they continually sort of surprised that they're exposing themselves? I know like I read the Nicholas Kristof piece when that came out last year where he he took your Detox Me kit, or he did the test, the urine test, and he thought he was going to sail through because he had was so aware of this as being part of the environment. And then he realized it was mothballs, it was air freshener, right. it was candles. So where where do you, can you give sort of a range of like the definite things to avoid like fragrance and maybe it's just that and fewer products in general and then where people sort of don't realize that they're exposing themselves?
1: Sure. So I, I would agree when it comes to just, you know, simple steps and all this can get pretty overwhelming as you, you called it the rabbit hole. It can get pretty overwhelming. I think one thing to realize is that a single step and another single step adds up eventually to a journey. And so you don't have to do it all at once and you don't have to be overwhelmed by it. You just look at some suggestions. I have one of the things I've done at Sound Spring Institute is to create an app, which is basically my effort to outsource my knowledge, my own knowledge to something in in an app form and all the research that we've done at Sound Spring organization over the the last 20 years and And others have done as well. So one of the things people can do is look at the Detox Me app and just look for tips that feel relevant to them, that they feel they're able to take on right then, not to try to do everything at once, but just Mm. pick ones that are, you know, the low hanging fruit. The other thing that's really important, you mentioned that you became really aware of this when you became pregnant. And that is a really great time actually, to pay attention to that, because, as I mentioned, a lot of these endocrine disrupting chemicals can affect the development, so that's actually a really fantastic time so if you're gonna you're gonna pick a time to be thinking about things, pregnancy and early childhood is a great time to be thinking about these kinds of things to focus on the you know the most susceptible,
2: yeah, no, and I think that what you said what you mentioned is it's like you I think it's important to start. Somewhere I was having this conversation with a makeup artist because she had some of the products that we have on Goop actually in her kit, like Kosas lipstick and some beauty counter foundation. And I was like, oh, that's I'm so impressed. And she was like, yeah, I'm working. I'm working on it. Um, You don't see that typically with like high performance makeup artists. And she's like, there are certain things that I can't give up, but where there are great alternatives I'm moving in that direction. I think that's I think that's, that's a, sort of perfect place to start. That's a
1: great way to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't you can't let it overwhelm you. You just mm-hmm. do what you can, look for opportunities to make some small changes and eventually feel like we're gonna make a difference here.
2: What about I swapped out my d de- like I'm pretty much I'm pretty clean through and through, but like deodorant. Are there certain parts of the body where you feel like I think of, of the armpit as something where the skin is thin and you're shaving and it's by your limbs and like that seems like a no. I mean, are there certain things that you think based on where they go on the body are more important than others um, or is it I think not- for,
1: for me, I think more about just how long something's in contact with your body. So if you're putting on a lotion and it soaks into your body, a deodorant, it stays on your body all day. For me, those those are, are feel very relevant.
2: Mm-hmm. That makes mm-hmm. sense.
1: You, you asked, I wanted to come back to something. So you asked about exposures that people maybe were surprised by. Yeah. Um, we've been talking a lot about personal care products, and that is great because it's something that we, we use every day and they're easy to change, which is very helpful in terms of prevention and reducing exposure. But there's another sort of class of of sources that, that most people don't think about too much. And a lot of research at Silent Spring Institute is focused on finding out what's in the home. And it turns out Certainly personal care products and fragrances have the capacity to contribute, believe it or not, chemicals move out of those also into our air and into our dust. But it turns out another source is two two classes of chemicals. I mentioned perfluorinated chemicals, Mm -hmm. and those are chemicals that are used to make Teflon and to make nonstick services in general and also to make stain-resistant treatments. So stain-resistant carpets or furniture might be one potential source the Teflon that we use, we just actually had a study come out this past week about a risk of or higher levels of perfluorinated chemicals in people's bodies. They were using a certain kind of dental floss. This is the glide floss. Mm, and
2: that's, saw that. that's
1: made of Teflon. Now, it turns out... The Whoa! Tef- yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it's made of Teflon. It turns out these, um, you know, that's a polymer. So that means it's it's all stuck together. Nothing's supposed to come off it. So we're not necessarily sure how these levels are coming from this perfluorinated chemicals. It could be trace contaminants. We're not entirely sure, but it seems like a bit of a coincidence. So, and the same thing with the Teflon. The Teflon in your pan shouldn't be releasing anything because it's polymer, but at the same time, we know that perfluorinated chemicals can potentially change shape and be released and turn Mm. into other forms. So, it's a little bit less firm than you might believe at first glance. Another source is actually flame retardants. Hmm. So flame retardants have been with us for decades. And they sort of keep moving around and changing, changing form. So originally, they were two of the places, at least that we see them come up a lot is in furniture, where historically, actually, they ended up there sort of as a result of the cigarette lobby. So originally... People were smoking a lot in homes and furniture would end up <laughs> smoldering and getting on fire. And so it's like, all right, well, let's just put some flame retardants in there so our couches don't let on fire, which sort of sounds logical when you think about it. But then you realize that you've added literally pounds of chemicals to your furniture for the sole purpose of, and it turns out it actually doesn't work very well either.
2: So- I can't imagine that it does. <laughs> it's really, we actually have come really far when you think about that idea taking root in American culture. It's actually kind of funny.
1: We have and we haven't. I mean, so this was all driven by California originally, because California is such a large economy. When they do something, the rest of us follow. And they sort of started these flame retardant standards a while back. And they they have changed since then to not require it, which is great, because now the rest of the country now has access to it. But You know, there's still plenty of furniture being made that has flame retardants in it. So we've by no means moved entirely past this, but certainly at least we've started to get the idea that maybe it's not a fantastic idea to add pounds of flame retardants to our furniture. And, you know, these are also, they're in electrical uh, material, things that have, you know, electrical protection on them to avoid, Mm -hmm. you know, fire from electrical devices and all sorts of plastics. So that's sort of a big area that moves out of products and into our home that some cases people are able to avoid when you're eventually shopping for a new couch and you look for a tag and you look for one that says this is not, you know, not treated with flame retardants and the app tells you what to look for on that. But in other cases, it's it's not so simple.
2: Yeah. So... You know, I know the problem with endocrine disrupting chemicals is that they mimic your estrogen, as you said, and it doesn't, I mean that, who knows when that happens or how quickly it happens, or you might actually know. But in terms of getting these things out of our system or ensuring that they're not in our systems for long, is it one of those things like once you stop using these products, the levels dramatically drop instantaneously, or are these and get into our fat. Like, how do we get these things out of our bodies?
1: Yeah, it it really varies. So, perfluorinated chemicals last a really long time in the environment, and they can last a long time in our bodies. Other chemicals, most of the the want the chemicals that are used in personal care products move through your body very quickly. They could be gone six, twelve hours. In that case, just changing a product can. Can decrease, you can decrease your levels very quickly. And we've seen that with some studies. There's been a study with teenagers and they substituted out their personal care products and they saw their their levels change. Um, and we've done that also with food. If you substitute food cooked in pla- cooked or served with plastic with fresh cooked food that's not cooked with plastic, you can see the the levels of, of these chemicals in your body change pretty quickly. So that's, that's the good news. Um, with some of these persi- more persistent chemicals, it can take a while. And that's one of the reasons that To the extent that there is, you know, international activity on these things, they've really focused on those persistent chemicals because, you know, they move all around the world and they end up in our food systems. And so there has been more action on that. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that there's still some there, that's really a big area where I think we can – benefit from some widespread changes.
2: Yeah. And, you know, we obviously talk a lot about detox at Goop and there's this age old sort of debate of people saying, oh, your body is absolutely equipped to handle this and it will, it can take care of anything. And then there are those who say, well, like not the load that we're sort of bearing today and some of these things that stick around for longer. Like where do you like where do you guys sort of land on that? Is it support the body and give it enough time and or do you actually need to sort of aggressively go after it like sweat like burning fat sweating like getting these things out of your body that's
1: a great question I'm not aware of any of sort of the more active actively detoxing methods working I haven't seen research that suggests that that works for me it's really about avoiding the sources and letting it move out of your body yes your body absolutely does have mechanisms to detoxify things. Although in some cases detoxifying a chemical means that it turns into another form of a chemical that might also have a health effect before it moves out of your body. But your body does basically have mechanisms to treat and move chemicals out. Although as I said in some cases these chemicals can be quite persistent and can move as you said into fat or
2: mm-hmm. and can
1: last. But there's there's not a lot we can do
2: about that other than changing our sources. Mm. That makes sense. So the detox me action kit, which I know is waitlisted, but this is this idea that you can sort of as a citizen, it's essentially a, a donation. You do the test, you you send in your urine. So what are you guys trying, like what's the goal just to understand what sort of the chemical patterns look like across the country? Right.
1: You- yeah. It's a really great opportunity to look at some of the factors that influence these chemicals in our bodies. Granted, our, our population does tend to be a little bit more aware of sources of toxic chemicals. So we actually, for some of our participants, the, the levels of the chemicals we're finding in their bodies are actually lower than the national average, which is great for them. And we're really happy to be able to tell them that. But yeah, it's, it's a really fantastic opportunity to get a large sample of people of, of chemicals just to see what is the distribution of these chemicals in our population right now and what kinds of factors in terms of our own behavior and our beliefs and our attitudes influence those.
2: Cool. So when when's the next round? Do you know when people will actually be able to get their grubby little mitts on it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, we just sent out our last round of um, reports. So we, re- we report back the information to participants yesterday, I believe. So right now we're in the process of looking at our overall survey results, seeing what what does it tell us about this population? What does it tell us about the chemicals? And more importantly, what are we going to do for the next round? Do we want to keep looking at the same set of chemicals, which were by and large chemicals that are you know really common in personal care products and some food and water sources? Or are we going to move into some different chemicals and some different sources and try to get some different sorts of information? So we're going to be looking at that information for the next couple of months. And I think we're aiming to get something, a new opportunity out to people in maybe March or April.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Elisa's interview with Jessica Helm. You can learn more about her work at silentspring.org. And you can check out the app she developed at silentspring.org slash detoxme. Now, here is today's AMA. Next question from Johnny, you mentioned that your love language is gifts. What's the best gift you've ever gotten? Well, I think I would have to say my husband a few years ago when he was my boyfriend, he stole my kids for the afternoon to work on a secret birthday project for me. And on my birthday that year, I opened three big photographs And he had taken my kids and gone to his lot, I guess, Paramount, and had the costume designer and set designer and makeup people dress them as my most iconic film parts. So I have the most incredible picture of them as Margot and Richie Tannenbaum as the two main characters in The Talented Mr. Ripley, and then the two main characters in Shakespeare in Love. And it's the most thoughtful present I've ever gotten, and it's so incredibly well executed. They're just the best photographs ever. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning into the Goop podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. And next week, we're starting a relationship series that will run on Tuesdays throughout February. We hope you'll also continue to tune in every Thursday. To keep up, just hit subscribe. And if you have a chance, please rate, review and share with a friend. For more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.